do, we have to manufacture adversity that involves uncertainty because uncertainty is a key that really hyper develops attributes. It really does, you know, because adversity you can, and, and I'm not saying it's exclusive, you can go through tough stuff, but once you inflict uncertainty into this, the equation, now you're hyper developing these attributes because now you're really in a position where you're leaning on them the, the best you can. You can't, it's hard to apply a skill to uncertainty. And that's when you're really hyper developing this stuff. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Do you have what it takes to succeed in any situation? That's what we're talking about today on the Ultra Habits podcast with Rich Divini. Now, Rich is a retired Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6 commander. And during his time in the Navy SEALs, Rich was tasked with understanding what were the successful attributes that made people succeed within what is one of the most physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually grueling weeks in the world. This is a conversation that really taps into how do we as individuals move beyond our limitations and adopt attributes, behaviors, and attitudes which may not be natural for us, but will ultimately help us be successful in whatever endeavors we choose. It's a really, really dynamic conversation with a, a man that's been through it all. Uh, we were talking about a humble man, Rich, does, doesn't come across as an elite warrior, but you know the presence is speaking through the camera. That this man has been exposed to many different things, many different challenges and situations, and he really understands through experience what it takes to succeed. Take what you will from the conversation. Rich has a whole list of attributes. There's about 25 attributes. We don't dive into each and every one. We just didn't have the time. But I do urge you to go to his website. Show notes are going to have everything about where you can find them to really understand what these attributes are. In the meantime, have a listen to our conversation. Take out what works for you. Think about maybe even taking and implementing what doesn't work for you. <laughs> Sometimes we throw things away because, you know, of our own limitations but really just contemplate on the conversation and think about where are your blind sides? What areas can you improve in? And what is your level of adaptability? Because ultimately Rich points to adaptability being one of the mother of all attributes. Anyways, folks, I'm going to leave you in Rich's hand. Do let us know what you think about the show. Rate this podcast. And if you haven't yet, Sign up for our newsletter as you will get some exclusive content as I go on the path of breaking a Guinness Book of World Record.
And I will be taking you on that journey to give you kind of an inside look to the way I live life, habits, and everything I need to do to stay peak and optimal and just basically keeping my shit together. Rich, welcome to the Ultra Habits podcast. Good morning here. Good afternoon. Good, good. I guess early evening uh, from uh, from the East Coast of the United States. So yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You're a man that's been on the move for the last few months. I know that we've tried to connect. Uh, you have you been on break? Have you been working? A bit of both? Just the former. Um, not, uh, or actually the latter, right? Mo- mo- uh, mostly working, uh, which is good. That's good news. But yeah, a lot of travel to to do. Uh, the consulting that we do for the attributes for organizations and teams. So that's been going very well. Um, and, um, and yeah, we basically, my wife and I do it together. So she's the kind of the COO and uh, she basically said, Hey, you're not going anywhere in December. She sends me off no matter, you know, anyway, regardless, which is great. Cause it's all different between there's a, there's a huge difference between the Navy telling you have to go somewhere and your wife telling you you have to go somewhere. So, and I, I'll tell you the latter is much better, but, um, uh, but yeah, we decided to, December, I'd be home, and that's uh, so I've been home for the last few weeks, and and we'll be through the holidays. Where are the consequences? Were they worse if you didn't follow orders in the Navy, or if you don't follow the orders at home? Like, what, <laughs> well, what, yeah. what, where, where do you bear the worst yeah, consequences? That's a, that's a, I, I guess the consequences for not following orders in the Navy are, is jail. So, uh, <laughs> so that's pretty bad. But um, but I know I think the I think the the idea when you do something, if you're lucky enough and, and are able to do something with with the person you love, it's, it's really, um, it, it's the synergy. I mean, the decisions are made together. There's a, there's a, there's a real, uh, well, I guess synergy between the way we can work. And, and so, uh, so she, you know, you know, when she can send me out, I, I can go happily. And, and sometimes she can come with me. We have a couple, we have two kids and, and so we can't, she can't come every time, but th- those are the best when she can come with me. A friend of mine who was a previous guest, him and his wife work with couples who want to go on an entrepreneurial journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, him and I had a personal conversation just about how challenging it can be when him and his wife are trying to coach yeah. couples, right? Because sometimes you realize when you create the business, your values are very different. Like, have you experienced, how do you, how, how have you experienced the whole process of kind of building a business with your wife and creating guardrails? And has that been challenging? You know, I would say uh, I could see how it how it could be, but the fact is, both of us are coming in with zero knowledge, <laughs> and so um, <laughs> and I think that's I do think that's a factor when you're learning together. Um, that is a factor because you're both making mistakes. We're both making mistakes. We're not, and we've never been. I'm listening. We we I, I we got married in 2001. We got married in July 2001, right? And I remember sitting her down and proposing, but telling her, "Hey, listen, she she didn't really know a lot about the Navy SEALs," and I said, "Listen." It's a, you know, it's a profession where we'll deploy here and there. I mean, it's a cycle. So I'll go to a team, I'll do some training and I'll deploy somewhere and I'll come home. It's just, you know, it's, it's fairly routine, fairly, fairly regular. And we got married and then 9-11 happened <laughs> and the whole world changed and we went to war. And so, so, and we've and so she lived, we've lived the war together and we've had two kids and we've, we've, we've been to the funerals and we've been through all the stresses. So, so, you know, you know, when you put it in context, building a business is, <laughs> is not, is, is not too bad. It's, it's tough, but we both are grateful that we've gotten to this point, uh, both safely and with health, um, that we can do it. And so I think that's, yeah, I guess you, you talk to any military couple and they are, especially those who have experienced combat, um, they are always going to be very grounded in perspective and, um, and it's easy to kind of say, well, yeah, this is hard, but come on. 
it's way better than what we, you know, what, what we could be doing or where we could be. And so I think that's how we, how we approach it. There's something powerful in kind of that learned collective resilience, right? That, that experience, that shared experience. And so let, let's take it back to the Navy. Rich, what was your original, like when you decided to go to the Navy, what was your why? Like, why did you go? I wanted to be a Navy pilot. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I loved flying. I loved the idea of flying. I grew up loving flying. Um, and I, I have a twin brother and both of us were kind of bent on that from early age. I mean, we're talking pre-Top Gun. We were bent on being Navy pilots. So so when Top Gun came out, it only made it even better, right? Because that was such an, you know, I was like, oh my God, that's so awesome. Um and uh, I didn't really, I didn't really uh, know anything about SEALs until uh, the early '90s, and it was after the first Gulf War. And I, I read a, I found a Newsweek article and kind of outlined the teams and a bunch of spec ops teams. And I said, "Man, this is really cool. I, that, that's something I may want to look into." I found my way to an ROTC program in college, and really kind of bounced back and forth, and said, "You know," and said, "Should I be a pilot? Should I be a SEAL?" And ultimately. What I thought was, listen, I, I knew that I could be a Navy pilot. I knew it, uh, but I didn't know if I could be a SEAL. <laughs> I didn't want to wonder if I could be a SEAL. I wanted to try something uh, that that very few people can do. And so I think there was there was certainly patriotism and 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 um, desire to serve the country. But I also joke was it was also because I wanted to see if I could be a badass. Most of us do at that. I mean, you're 22 years old, or even some of the guys going through that training are 18 years old. And, you're just uh, you want to try to see if you can do something very few people can do. And and back then, no one really knew what Navy I mean, Navy SEALs weren't well known. Mm, the popularity yeah. curve grew while we were. Yeah, yeah. Very, it was actually bizarre to live, you know, to, to go from being invisible to being the famous most one of the most famous units on the planet. Right. So so that was always that that wasn't even a factor. Um, uh, but that was the that was the impetus. And when I got there, I just kind of started going through it. And, and there were times. Uh, certainly even after training where I said, Ooh, I don't know if I made a mistake. I'm, I'm not sure if I like this as much as I would have liked flying. Um, uh, but then the war started, it got very busy and I, you know, you really kind of, you, you get into a groove. I got to some commands that I really enjoyed and got with people I really enjoyed working with. And, and yeah, it just, it, it, it went very fast. It really did 20 mm. years. In blink. Interesting. I remember in the early two thousands, do you remember the author was it Richard Marcinko or yeah, Dick Marcinko? He, yeah, you're like he was like the dude, right? Like, and he wrote all those books, and right, that yeah. was kind yeah. of like the only information that was out there. And interesting enough, he was he was a little bit of a rogue. I you know the book was called Rogue Warrior and Warrior, and he was obviously the he founded SEAL Team Six, and and he wrote about that, and he wasn't supposed to, so he got in a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> but but his book, yeah, his book actually came out uh, after I had actually been garnered some interest in the teams, and there are some very good authors. Uh, or Kelly um, was one, and he wrote a book called Brave Men, Dark Waters. You could I, I read a lot of the the kind of really grounded SEAL literature. There wasn't that much, right? Um, but it was very grounded. It was very real. And Marcinko's was kind of a fun, sexy hoo book. But but those other <laughs> books were like, hey, this is actually what it's like. So I got I got I got some indoct through those types of those types of literature. But ultimately, you know, I mean, I went to training. I was like, man, I got it was like getting hit with a sledgehammer. I was like, what the heck is going on here? I had to really like just knuckle down. But uh, but nowadays, I mean, there's there's almost too much out there, you know, um, and uh, it's hard to it's hard to make sense of of what's what's right and what's what's real. So. What do you think the Navy's view is on the like proliferation of fame like i mean maybe there's some upside right like there's you know people want to become seals but in many ways it's kind of gone 
a little bit Hollywood. And I was talking to Ryan about it. Like you juxtapose that, but let's say Delta, which you hear mm-hmm. nothing about. No one right. ever, you don't even know was in it. Right. Like, right. like, do you think it's a good thing or do you think it's, it's not a good thing? Yeah. I think, I think like anything it can, you can find some pros and some cons and it depends on how the, 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 the community and the Navy uh, deal with it. I, there was a, the, and so I'll just talk about the community because the Navy, I, I would say ultimately for the Navy, it's a good thing, right? The, for, right. The, for the big Navy, yeah. it's a good thing. Cause what happens yeah. is they yeah. get a bunch of people trying out for SEAL training. 90% of them don't make it. And so those guys <laughs> automatically get, <laughs> they get, they get bodies. Right. So like, Hey, we're good with this. Right. At least that's what I would assume. Um, the community, you know, the community, it's, it's, it's really very interesting. It's, it, it was very interesting to kind of feel and ride that curve. What was happening as the war started was that we, as a community were finding that we actually needed more seals. Um, and so there was, there was started to be a, a more of a concerted effort to get some, get the word out about Navy SEALs and get some recruiting going. And then some of you might remember, so some, I mean, Spike Lee directed some commercials about Navy SEALs and things like that. The, a movie called Active Valor was made and it was made with real, a real Navy SEAL platoon, right? And it was, it was, it was completely endorsed by the community and the, they were allowed to do that. Um, and so there was a, there was a push on that end. Meanwhile, the the environment the war generated uh incidents and events that put the navy seals on the radar of the public and things like you know we you know the, the lone survivor story marcus luttrell that all happens and so suddenly navy seals are starting to go into the into the into the news media and and, and mainstream and so there was a there was almost a convergence of things happening in seals in the media uh and a a an effort by the community and it and it converged and so there started to be this bubble. And then, th- then we started doing things like, you know, rescuing Captain Phillips and getting bin Laden. And it was just, it was, it exploded. It really exploded. And so, and so there was at the beginning, there was a little bit of a, you know, Hey, we're, there's a purpose for this, but it was, it was matched with a unforeseen level of publicity. Um, and then there was of course the emissions that generated a large amount of publicity that, um, I think the community at this point would probably admit that we weren't prepared for, um, you know, hard to understand why we weren't prepared for it because, you know, that that's a huge, you know, those are huge operations, but, but, you know, it, it, when you're a unit that lives really largely in the shadows as ghosts and you get used to that, you don't know really how to prepare for publicity We none of us do. Um, and so, so, you know, it became, it, I think we became too famous too fast. Um, and, uh, and I think the results, the, the pros of that was that it, it highlighted the unit in ways and uh, in ways that it never had been. I mean, there's, you know, Navy SEALs are doing good stuff out there as are all other spec operators and, and, and the whole special operations community, I think benefited from that type of stuff because the special operations community got very well funded and got visibility and things like that. The cons of course are you just, there, there are, there are drivers that cause, I think, gentlemen to try to try out for the wrong reasons. Um, and, uh, and that's where you get in trouble. And, and then, and of course, you get people who, who try out and, they, and they're able to get through and they make it through and they, they spend a couple of years and then they get out and then they use that as really a calling card versus, you know, uh, an active service. So, so, you know, there's, there's, there's certainly pros and cons. I, I, think, I do think that those folks who served and I'm not talking about the guys who got in and did two years or four years and then got out and 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 started telling stories. I'm talking about the folks who served and they went did stuff and they got out and they started really 
telling their stories that help people and and do and using some of the things that they that they learn to help people and build businesses. I have no problem with that, nor should the community. But but yeah, there's there's bad eggs and there's good eggs. And I think mm-hmm. um, I think it's a responsibility of the Navy and the community to manage that. Here's the good news is, is a lot of the, the leadership nowadays in the community are like my the guys I went through, but you know, all my best friends are starting to become admirals, you know. And so these yeah. guys are taking over the the reins and, and the community's in very, very good hands. It really is. So so I'm really optimistic about uh, about the community and where it's going. When and how did you get interested in this concept of attributes? Well, about midway through my career, I applied and was chosen and got through the selection course for one of our very elite SEAL teams. That's all I'll say. I was a very specialized elite SEAL team. And I got there and I was serving there. And a few years after that, I was put in charge of the selection process for that SEAL team. And at that SEAL team, what uh, our SEAL command, what happened was we would get um, applicants from all the regular SEAL teams to come to our team, and then we'd put them through a nine-month selection process. And, and to, to apply, you had to have like the top top evaluations, top ratings, you know, recommendations, all that. So you were, we were getting top dudes to come to this command, and we were putting them through the selection. It's about a 50% attrition rate. So 50% of the guys who were coming were not making it through. Is this um, dev group, Rich? Yes, it was, yes. Now, any selection process implies attrition, right? So 50% is not that big of a deal. Um, <laughs> But the problem was we weren't able to effectively articulate why guys weren't making it through. We were saying things like, well, couldn't shoot very well, couldn't do this. Very well. and, and they were all very skills based. And these, I mean, again, these are top dudes. You know? So it, was, it felt yeah. disingenuous to them, disingenuous to us. And of course, our leadership was like, hey, you got to tell me more than something. You know, if you're not, if you're not going to pick this dude, you got to tell me something more than, hey, he didn't cut it. Right. You have to have something more. So when I took over training, uh, the leadership asked me to really look at it and say, hey, Rich, can you really kind of start? articulating what we're doing. And so to do that, I had to really deconstruct performance. And when I started to deconstruct performance, I started to recognize that, hey, there's actually two types of performance. There's this very visible performance that's kind of tangible and and easy to see and identify. And then there's this performance that comes from hidden qualities that we don't necessarily see. And, um, And what I found is that in our community, and communities like ours, those ones are the ones that are preferred. It's not really about the skills. It's about these attributes, these qualities. And so that's why I began to separate these two things, skills versus attributes. Um, and the fact is, you know, these skills, just to, just to lay it out for the audience, skills are, they're not inherent to our nature. Not, we're not born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball. They direct our behavior. They tell us how and when to do something. Here's how and when to throw a ball or ride a bike. And then they're very visible. So they're very easy to assess, measure, and test, right? You can see how well anybody does any one of those things. The problem with skills is they don't tell us how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult to apply a known skill. That's when we lean on attributes. Attributes, on the other hand, are inherent to our nature. We're all born with levels of adaptability, situational awareness, patience, right? Now, we can certainly develop these things over time and experience, but you can see levels of this stuff in very small children, which means there's a nature-nurture element to attributes. Attributes don't direct our behavior. They inform our behavior. They tell us how we're going to show up to an environment. So, for example, my son's levels of resilience and perseverance informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. And then finally, because they're hidden in the background, they're very difficult to see. And they're very, that means they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. The only, they're the most visible and visceral during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty. That's when they're really kind of showing up. So bottom line is if we're not considering attributes when we're looking at performance, then we're not, we're, we're, we're missing a huge part of the performance picture. And what I recognized in the training I was running was that, hey, we are mostly looking for not if the guy has the skills to do the job, because we can always train skills. 
We need to see if they have the attributes to be able to do what we're asking them to do, to be able to do the job. And a quick example I'll give you that's that's kind of simple and goes back to our basic SEAL training. You've had some SEALs on your show. Uh, you're, you know the community, basic SEAL training called BUDS, basic underwater demolition slash SEAL training. Back when I went through, I went back, I went through back in 96. And, um, and, and so back when I went through, one of the first things that you had to do when you showed up was swim 50 meters, uh, jump in the pool, swim 25 to one end, 25 back to the other end. The story goes, and, and the, this apparently happened before I got there, right? But the story goes, a kid, a kid shows up and it's his turn to swim. When he jumps into the pool, he, sw- he sinks to the bottom. And he starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one end. And then he walks across the bottom of the pool back to the other end. He comes up and he's gasping for air, right? Almost drowning. And the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid, who's still trying to get his breath, looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor. I don't know how to swim. And the instructor pauses for a second and looks at the kid and says, that's okay. We can teach you how to swim. Now, why did the instructor do that? It's because the instructor knew that if this kid had the qualities, the attributes to show up to Navy SEAL training without knowing how to swim and just jump into a pool and walk across the bottom, he had everything we needed to be a Navy SEAL attribute-wise. Teaching him the skill of swimming was going to be the easy part, right? And so, and so these attributes start to inform our behavior. And we start talking about everything we do, whether it be spec ops or business or, or sports or whatever. Everything we do is underpinned by these attributes. And that's really how I got into them. And then before I got, I got out of the Navy and I realized, well, businesses and teams and individuals, they don't know how to articulate this either. They call them a lot of times you hear soft skills, you know, these intangibles, right? We're talking about attributes. So I wanted to write a book to kind of lay it all out. You know, there's that saying, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We rise to the level of our training. Now, if that's true, would you say that through developing competence in your craft, it elevates your attributes because you can go into like, I guess, an automatic mode? Well, in some cases, and the way I would describe it is um, we think of skills as what what are those things that we can train to do, those tasks, whatever, those rote tasks that we can train to do? That um, that are that are and can be kind of the same every time. So let's just take um, so so here's well let's just take seals for example. Okay, are the basic the basic seal skills are shoot, move, and communicate. Okay, I need to be able to shoot my weapons, operate my weapon systems. I need to communicate when I need. I need to be able to communicate where I need to communicate. I need to be able to move in the way I need to move. Right, those are basic skills that seals seals require. Okay, training in those to a, to a high degree allows you to get to the point where you can do them without thinking about them okay that's when you are able to access your full mental capacity to deal with uncertainty what navy seals are and what we actually teach in the at, at the attributes incorporated and where i'm gonna and, and my next book will be about this too but what navy seals are are in fact masters of uncertainty that's what they are okay it's not about the shooting it's not about the skydiving it's not about the the, the scuba diving it's about the fact that there are individuals and teams that can drop into deeply complex, ambiguous environments and uncertain environments and start performing. Okay. The way you do that is you understand exactly, there's a few, you know, there's a few things that go into it, but part of the key thing is understand exactly what attributes you bring to the table because it's the attributes that are going to allow you to begin to figure out and move inside that environment. If you've trained in in certain skills to the to the effect that you don't have to think about them, that only helps, right? So skill training can help develop attributes in the sense that it helps put you in a position where you can more effectively and more often jump into uncertain environments and begin to develop these other attributes. Another great example is driving, okay? And I drive a stick shift. I've, I've, I've taught my kids how to drive a stick shift, a standard shift. Um, and 
And the idea is once you get to the point where you can shift gears and you can drive that car without thinking, then the whole driving world opens up, right? And now I can start actually dealing with everything that driving is about. While I'm still learning how to drive that stick shift, I'm all in the skills. I'm down here looking at the gear shift. I'm looking at my, cl- my, my foot pushing the clutch. Everything. I'm not even looking out the window when I'm first learning how to drive a stick shift. But then slowly as I get, a, I get those skills developed and I don't have to think about it, I still start to look out the window. And then I'm not thinking about it all. I'm talking, I start to get a whole sense of my environment. So there's a, there's a real um, synergy between skills development and attribute development. But what people have to recognize is just developing a raw skill just for the skill's sake is not necessarily going to develop attributes because it's highly certain. And it's, the, it's in the uncertain environments where we see attributes the most viscerally. I know you have 25 attributes, but I think there's kind of heading, they're, they're header attributes, right? Like, yeah, so the book, I talk about 25 attributes. Uh, there are more than 25. I just so I focused in on 25 and I broke them into five categories. The first category is grit, which is, you know, and again, people think of grit as a singular attribute, as its own attribute. It's not. Grit is actually a combination of things like blended and stewed together that create grit. Um. And in this case, we can define grit as the ability to kind of uh, to, to push through and, and kind of achieve those short term, those more acute challenges, like around, like the, the things that we have to just, they're just shorter. They're like, I'm going to sort of power through the thing. That's what, that's what grit is. Grit, are, grit is spurts of power and, and perseverance and things like that. So, so short term, think grit short term. And the attributes that make up grit are courage, adaptability, perseverance, and resilience. Those are the attributes. Okay. The next one is mental acuity, which describes the way we kind of process the world around us, the way our brain processes the world. So these are situational awareness, our level of vigilance, compartmentalization, how well can we focus in and do something without getting distracted, task switching, how, how effectively can we switch focus points between categories and contexts inside of our environment, and then learnability, how effectively can we then metabolize and learn lessons uh, in, in our environment. That's the, that's the mental acuity. Then there's the drive attributes. Okay, drive. If, if grit is short term, like think short term stuff. Drive is the long term stuff, right? So what are what are the attributes that make up the driven person? Okay, and those are uh, uh, self efficacy, uh, discipline, open mindedness, cunning, and narcissism. Um, and I know we can get into that if we want, but yes, it's an attribute. Then we have the leadership attributes. What are the attributes that make up great leadership? Okay, and again, as a leader, when we think about leadership, leadership is not a position it's a behavior okay you don't get to call yourself a leader for example you know that's like calling yourself good looking or funny other people decide whether or not you're good looking or funny other people decide whether or not you're a leader and they do so based on the way you behave and those behaviors stem from these attributes so those are uh those are uh, empathy selflessness authenticity decisiveness and accountability and then finally team ability attributes which how we effectively operate with others on a team Again, same like leadership, you don't get to call yourself a great teammate. <laughs> Other people decide whether or not you're a great teammate based on these behaviors, integrity, conscientiousness, humility, and humor. And so, and so those are the, the basic attributes I talk about in the book, and those are the categories uh, that kind of wrap around this kind of uh, idea of, of performing optimally. Hey, folks, a quick break to thank you for joining us on the third year of Ultra Habits. A hell of a ride. Thank you for coming. Now, one of the things about having all these amazing conversations day in, day out, is I feel like I talk a lot, but I'm not always doing as much as I'd like to. I'm just not sharpening my sword the way that I'm used to. So I decided to put myself back under the heat. I will be embarking on a new crucible as I attempt a Guinness Book World Record feat. And more to be revealed on that later. But I want to document the journey. 
real, raw, uncut, uncurated with a real, real focus on the habits that I'm going to be implementing on a daily basis to sustain me on this crazy journey. If you haven't already, subscribe to the newsletter. It's all there. It'll be www.ultrahabits.co. That's www.ultrahabits.co. Come along the ride. Let's do this together. When we think of SEALs in, you know, like the public, a lot of us think of, you know, athletes or people that obviously have the physicality. Is a, a stereotype, we think of like this athletic kind of, you know, buff person in there, right, right. just type A, bit ADHD, maybe a bit yeah. of David Goggins, whatever, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. is that true or, you know, or is what a really successful hyper successful seal looks like or is it much more um you know are the qualities much more subtle yeah it's it's very much the latter the qualities are much more subtle of course you have you have athletes in the seal teams but being an athlete has very little to do with whether or not you're going to make it through seal training in fact we've had yeah, it's it's often the case that you know like super athletes come and show up to buds and and they quit within the first few few days right uh, because it has to do with uh, a level of and an ability to push through at the worst moments. And, and, and listen, I don't, so I would actually, athletics is interesting, is, uh, is an interesting genre for me because I, I'm really about how people operate in uncertainty. That's my whole thing. I love thinking about it, teaching it, deconstructing it. How do we help people do better in uncertainty, challenges, stress? That's my thing, right? And when you look at the athletic genre, um, it's interesting because it's a genre where people a lot of times assume that you can train in these uncertain environments in athletics. And that's not just that that, that is not the case. The majority of, of, of athletics are very certain environments. Listen, you're not going to go on a football field or a rugby, rugby field or a, or a, or a um, basketball court and not know what's going on. Everything about that environment is certain. Now, there is a scale, right? There are sports there are athletics that actually have quite a bit of uncertainty in them those are things like fighting like mma or whatever uh rock climbing okay um surfing to a degree to a degree I mean, there's 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 athletic endeavors there's sports that actually have a lot of uncertainty built into them baked in so uh, there so there are there are there's a there's a range there um but ultimately and oh by the way you know when they looked at they, they have no code as to who makes it through buds? So they don't. They haven't cracked that code yet. I mean, that's a it's a mystery, which is which should be a, a good example of how the, the 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 flock is so diverse. But what they did, what they have realized is that in in general terms, like wrestlers and fighters, in general terms, tend to do better. <laughs> it's it, that, that the reason why is very simple in my head is because when you're in that type of sport you're dealing with uncertainty. You start to learn how to deal with uncertainty in a way that you might not on another, another athletic field. All that said, there are baseball players, there are football players, there are basketball players who end up being sealed. So it's not, again, it's not exclusive, but I would say to answer your question, the, the typical seal, I always say, you know, the most dangerous seal you'll ever meet is the guy you never knew you met. All right. Because they look normal. They don't look, you know, abnormally mean or, or buff or, or super big, right? They're just, you know, again, for the, the majority of the teams is about blending in. It's about being ghosts. And, um, and I think that's, that's the cool part of it in my mind. Uh, so, so yeah, mm -hmm. really diverse crowd in terms of where they come from. I was talking to, to Mark Devine about this and, you know, you bring up an interesting point like that 
that ability in that moment to push beyond that pain, whether it be mental or physical. I reflect on my own journey and it was interesting. I was talking to Mark about it. Like he made a kind of a, a throwaway comment, but it was pretty profound. I, it was throwaway in a sense that he kind of, he just said it, um, but it was pretty profound in the sense that he said, he, I paraphrase, a lot of SEALs are kind of people that are dealing with their trauma. Mm. And and I think what he meant, like when, when I look at that situation, the ability to, I'm an ultra endurance runner. Yeah. Right? I leverage history and what I've been through and suffering and pain as an addict and someone that's gone through, um, you know, uh, my history. How much of that would you say comes into play in the psyche of a, a successful seal? Like how much are they trying to move away from their past or who they were and how much of it is about becoming? That's a great question. And the, the answer, I don't know if we'll ever know the answer. I, I think that's also on a sliding scale in terms of, uh, A, well, A, I guess trauma is always subjective, right? So that's, that's one thing. Um, and then B, uh, how that. I think it's more about not necessarily um, guys or the guys who are successful are moving away from that. Well, I would say, I, I would, I would say my, my thought on it would be, it's not necessarily they're moving away from the trauma. I think it's more that whatever trauma they went through allowed them to train their brains in how to compartmentalize and do the things they need to, to get through buds. People have asked me, Hey, what do you think? What are, what are the attributes that you need to get through buds? And I, you know, I could probably develop some sort of list, right. But if I were to pick one attribute that every single guy needs or gal now, if they, if they, if they gals go through, right. To get through seal training, it's compartmentalization. If you don't have a, enough compartmentalization, if you don't have a sufficient level of compartmentalization, you will not make it through. And you have to have that on day one of buds, you can't show up without it, right? So in other words, every single guy who made it through buds showed up on day one with a certain level of compartmentalization that allowed them to get through and just hyper develop. Where that came from, who knows? Okay, we all, I, I, I grew up, I had a pretty nice childhood. I didn't have a, I didn't have a lot of trauma in my, in my upbringing, okay? Um, and so, so now, but I can still pick out events in my life right as a kid i was like oh okay i think that i was doing some compartmentalization training there i could this is where this was happening so i picked out i could pick out times where i was training my brain in this way that eventually came in very useful on the beaches of seal training and of course it has to be for combat right so so i think trauma informs that level of uh developments that then allows you to get through something like seal training because i would imagine um i don't think they've ever done a poll on this but i would imagine a, a, a vast majority of that 90 percent of, of guys who quit also had trauma in their lives right um and they didn't make it okay so so it's really about what the trauma does and how that is manifested to what you can do uh getting through the training and of course all that matters because combat is even worse than training oftentimes so have you guys ever done research collectively on the history of seals prior to them coming into the navy to understand if there were patterns across when they were born in their family first child second child i don't think there has been um i don't think they've gone that deep it's funny you should say that because because i've always kind of said and i i am i i'm not involved with the community anymore because i'm retired i'm doing other things i've always said if if they if they ever wanted me to if they were if they were kind enough to invite me back i i think i and they asked me to take a group of Dude, we're about to start training and see if we could predict, you know, who was going to make it through. 
one of the things I would do is I'd make every single one of them take out, you know, I'd give them a, a few sheets of paper and I said, okay, write down how you got here, write down the story of how you got here and write down any kind of story of your life of significance. Right. And I think we get that. My sense is the, 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 the guys who wrote down, like, well, I, I saw, I saw, uh, the Navy SEAL movie. I thought it was cool. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna try this. And then I went to my recruiter. I got, I got, I did a lot of working out. I got in shape. I went to my recruiter. I mean, and it's like a paragraph, right? They're probably not going to make it. Right. But the guy who has like 10 pages <laughs> of shit, right. That probably that guy has a I think probably has a better chance of making it. So so I, I do think you could probably start making some relations. But you know, when we start talking about first child, second child, I mean that's tough too. I don't think, you know, because again, you're just talking about averages at the end of the day. I truly think if we could if we could effectively study or research or get data on those folks who had proactive compartmentalization events. Mm-hmm. And they were, and they were higher up on the attribute. They were able to work through what it means to compartmentalize effectively. You'd start, I think you'd start being able to start pre-predicting who's going to make it through. So I want to shift now. So say I now know my attributes. Yeah. How can I develop them? So it takes three things. All of us have all of the attributes. That's one thing everybody has to understand. We all, we are born with all of them. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each. So if we take adaptability, <laughs> 10 is high and one is low. I would be probably a level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it. Okay, Someone else might be a level three, which means the same thing happens to them. It's difficult for them to go with the flow. Again, there's no judgment there because human beings are adaptable. You know, it's not that that person's not adaptable. It's just harder there. There's friction, right? So, so if we're to line all these up on the wall, like dimmer switches, all of us would have different settings. And that starts to speak to how we perform, right? So we can start to understand how and why we perform the way we do. So that's number one. Number two is you can never have a, a you never you can never have nor do you want a high level of all the attributes. It's impossible, and it's probably going to interfere with your with your specific niche. There are specific niches that require lower levels of certain attributes. I always kind of say the stand up comic with too much empathy is not going to be a very good stand up comic, right? I mean, because you're not going to be able to see the, fu- the 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 funny at a funeral, for example, if you have too much empathy. Right? So, so too much of an attribute can be detrimental to whatever endeavor you're in. So it's really about understanding. And I always kind of, the last thing I'll say is I relate it to, to the movie cars, which I love that movie. It's not just because my kids made me watch it a thousand times. It's because it's a good movie. Right. And it's a good example, I think of humans because humans, we're all automobiles. Okay. But some of us are SUVs and some of us are Jeeps and some of us are Ferraris. And, and again, there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do. And the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do, but it behooves us to kind of lift our hood once in a while and figure out what kind of engine we're running with, because if we realize that we're a Jeep and we're running on a Ferrari track, now we have a, we have a, 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 a reason, some, some explanation as to why we have some friction, right? So that's all that to say, if you are lower on an attribute that you actually do want to develop, it takes three things. It takes self-awareness. You have to know you're low on it. Self-motivation. You have to want to develop it. And then it takes a willingness for you as an individual to deliberately step into stress, challenge, and uncertainty to develop that attribute. So you got to find, so for example, if you want to develop your patients, you have to go find environments that test and tease your patients, whatever that looks like for you. Okay. It might be, I'm going to go deliberately drive in traffic. It might be, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to stand in the longest line of the grocery store. I always say having kids, having kids will develop patients, right? But, um, but whatever those are for you, you got to find those and then you can start developing these attributes and, and getting a little bit higher on those. It's interesting. I just, uh, 
wrote an article actually for Forbes, you know, mentioning how the Marines use crucibles, right? And for me, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer that we can and we should create self-imposed crucibles, particularly focused on areas in our lives that aren't necessarily optimized, right? So what you're talking is about, we got to create, we've got to manufacture adversity and that, that will then stretch us in that particular domain, right? That's right. But it also, we have to do, we have to manufacture adversity that involves uncertainty because uncertainty is a key that really hyper develops attributes. It really does, you know, because adversity you can, and, and I'm not saying it's exclusive, you can go through tough stuff, but once you inflict uncertainty into this, the equation, now you're hyper developing these attributes because now you're really in a position where you're leaning on them the, the best you can. You can't, it's hard to apply a skill to uncertainty. And that's when you're really hyper developing this stuff. How do you know that you're improving within that attribute? Uh, you'll feel less friction when that attribute is required, right? So in other words, if you're low on adaptability, it means, hey, when the environment changes outside, you know, around me outside my control, I feel, I feel friction. I feel uncomfortable. If you begin to consistently put yourself in environments where you are forced to adapt, you, 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 you work that muscle, you will become better in adaptability. You'll feel less friction. You'll feel more comfortable in those environments that are requiring adaptability. So you know you're developing it better are developing more if you have and feel less friction when it's required. When you look at teams, do you find just from an attribute perspective, teams work better when they have all like it's homogenous, like when they all have the same attributes or can that create conflict? Like, do you generally want teams where there's, you know, variation in that? Yeah. Like what happens if everyone's too too much the same? And like, is, are you better off creating teams intentionally by knowing the attributes of your people like what's yeah. your view on that yeah so there's a little bit of both and that's actually the work we do with organizations and teams is uh, so the, the first thing you have to do is you have to help teams and organizations understand the list of attributes that's applicable to them so so in other words the, the list of attributes that makes a great navy seal team is going to look different than the list of attributes that makes a great surgical team or athletic team or team of salespeople or teachers right so so we, we, we first have to figure out what that list looks like. And that list is going to break down into a list that at the very top are the, what I call mission critical attributes. And it's usually only two or three attributes that are mission critical. But those are the, those are the attributes that you must have to be on this team. It's, there's, it's non-negotiable. You have to have those or you will, you will not be. Then you start getting kind of mission essential, mission enhancing attributes, which are, they're, some of them are more required than others. If some, if you don't have, it'll be really hard. Some are just nice to have, right? So, so the best teams first understand that attribute list. And then you have to bring together a team that all have the critical ones. They all have those critical ones, but then there's a diversity in those, right? And the other ones, like someone who's a little bit lower on one can be buttressed by someone who's higher on that, right? And then there are some attributes, and I talk about these in the book. Um, uh, there's, there's three that I leave out of those categories, really, in fact, six that I call the others. And these, these are the ones that, that I found when I kind of dove into them, that the high ends of each of them, of each of this, of each of the polarities were, 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 um, were, uh, good or were, were, um, positive for success. In other words, take patience as one patience and impatience. There are highly successful people who are patient. There are highly successful people who are impatient. The next one is competitiveness. There's highly successful people who are competitive. There's highly successful people who are non-competitive, right? So, so these, and, and so what you find on teams is the best teams have both polarities because the best teams, and I'll give my wife and I an example. My wife and I have been married 20, 20, uh, almost 21 years. So we lived through the war. She is a 
impatient person. Okay. I am a patient person, just, just naturally. Okay. It's worked beautifully because in our relationship, as we've been raising kids, when patience is required, I typically can step up and take lead and she follows, right? When impatience is required, she steps up and takes lead and I follow. Okay. So, so these, there's, there, 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 there are attributes that actually you want both polarities on because the team requires that it makes the team. So, so it's very, your question is, the answer is it's very subjective to the team. Um, but ultimately there's going to be a team made up of everybody with a core set of attributes, but that's only like two or three. And then a mixture of all the other ones that create the, create the, 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 the high performance team that we want. We're going to move to, to habits now as we, we start to land the plane here, Rich. You know, so I now know my attributes. I, I create uh, scenarios where I can work and enhance them. In terms of the long term to, to solidify this, this gain in, in strength within a particular attribute, where does habits come into play? I think habits come into play, and they're they're important in in helping to codify those 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 things, those procedures, those those um, those tactics or tools that we we want to get to the point where we don't have to think about. We just do, okay? Because again, when in dealing with uncertainty, okay, um, the less uh, the less load that you can put on your brain on your front of it, the better, because because the more you have, the more the more uh, the less load, the more access you have to just figure out the environment. So, so if I've developed a set of tools and habits that allow me to do things without thinking about them, I've just opened my aperture. Now, it's going to depend on the habits, right? But, but I think I think most of the positive habits can be defined as those things that actually implement goodness into my life, right? In some way, in some form or another, they they make things easier, or they put me on a path that makes things easier, or they put me on a path that that drives me towards. Uh, health and wealth and, and success and right? things like that. Now we all obviously all have bad habits too, which do the opposite. Okay, uh, but but regardless of good or bad habits, we're still doing it doing them without really thinking about them, right? And that's allowing our our brain to kind of operate and start figuring out this environment. So I think the uh, the ability to form good habits that release and uh, relieve the load uh, off your mm-hmm. off your frontal lobe and conscious mind is great because it simply just allows more brain power to deal with the uncertain environment. And that's, it takes a lot, a lot of time, depending on how uncertain mm-hmm. the environment is. Yeah. I like that. I like the correlation between habituation and uh, mitigating uh, ambiguity and feelings of uncertainty, because that's ultimately what we're trying to do is create as much process, natural process around that. And to your point to uh, alleviate the, the mental burden yeah. uh, of, of, you know, then we can focus obviously on the situation at hand. So Rich, I really want to thank you for the conversation. Thoroughly enjoyed your time. I really like talking to uh, people like yourself that have this kind of, uh, obviously the physicality is there, but there's an academic flavor as well. Uh, philosophical dialogue. It's, 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 I can have it every day, all day, man. So, so thank you for the conversation. Where can our audience learn more about you and your work? Yeah, the, I mean the best, the best and easiest place is uh, is theattributes.com. and if you go there, you'll see everything, um, all the stuff that we do, the books there. We have some assessment tools. All of my social media handles are there. You can grab me on social media. In fact, I recommend going there to get them because, you know, I think Instagram. There's some folks who are trying to mirror accounts and things like that. So you want to get the real, you want to get the real Rich Davini accounts on that one. But uh, but yeah, uh, theattributes.com is the one stop shop, and you can also get the book there as well. So and I want to thank you, RJ, for having me. It's it's such a great 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 way to 
to spend my afternoon slash evening and have a great conversation. So I appreciate that. No worries, Rich. Thank you, mate.